Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 92 of UConn 360. That's the only podcast known to science that covers the University of Connecticut from every conceivable angle. Coming to you from various Zoom locations across the great state of Connecticut, I am your uh, facilitator of sorts. My name is Tom Breen, and I'm joined, as always, by my colleague, Julie Bartuka. Julie, how are you? I'm doing great. Happy Monday, Tom. Happy Monday. We're recording this on a Monday. I don't know when you're listening to it. It could be any day, frankly. And if it, it is could. a Monday, happy Monday. Happy to you. Monday. A lot of exciting stuff happening. We, we are entering the basketball postseason, which, of course, is always a busy time here on campus. We're not quite yet in commencement mode, but we're on the road to it. And there's there's some other things. There's some 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 plaudits being handed out to faculty members. Isn't that right, Julie? Yeah, I just wanted to mention one recent story, the 12 UConn and UConn Health faculty members that will be inducted into the Connecticut Academy of Science and Engineering, also known as CASE, at its 47th annual meeting in May. They span different parts of UConn, including the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences, the School of Engineering, UConn Health, the Avery Point Campus, and the Technology Incubation Program, and include researchers, university leaders, entrepreneurs, and educators. So I just wanted to congratulate them, and you can see who they are and what they were honored for at UConn Today. And there's another thing I wanted to mention over at UConn Today. One of our friends of the pod, as they say in the uh, podcast industry, I guess. I'm going to call him a friend. I haven't spoken to him since 2019, but Walt Woodward, the state historian, is retiring at the end of the semester. And we have a great Q&A with him. And he was one of my favorite guests, if I can say that, if I can play favorites. And we had a really fun conversation with him back in episode 41 of the podcast. So go read that, go listen to that back episode and learn what Walt Woodward is all about. Walt is a, Walt's a fantastic, not just a, a researcher, but also like a fantastic public educator. When he started at UConn, I conducted the first media interview with him. I was a reporter at the time at the Journal Inquirer, and I was being shadowed by an intern, a journalism intern, who really? was uh, Jacqueline Severance, who is oh now my gosh. working in our office. Yeah, so so Walt Woodward has a very, it's kind of a six degrees of Things Walt Woodward come situation. full circle. And find out what his involvement was in the Care Bears movie in the Yukon 360 podcast episode. Yes. Fun fact. Yeah. Um, and of course, Walt works uh, at UConn Hartford, which is a, a new, uh, refurbished, vital part of downtown Hartford. And that's a that's a somewhat clumsy segue, but we'll take it. It's because, better uh, than some of the segues. You've it had, is better than be some of my segues because today we're we're fortunate to be joined by a guest who uh, also works at UConn Hartford, although not in the history department. Works on a, a fascinating range of issues and is is part of the I would say it's growing UConn's School of Social Work. Julie, tell us who we're going to meet today. I will. So as Listeners may remember I used to work with the School of Social Work on a temporary basis, and I met a ton of amazing people over there. And I will say Tanya was one of the coolest. This is Tanya Rhodes-Smith, who is director of the Nancy A. Humphreys Institute for Political Social Work, which I think is a hidden gem here at UConn. She's also an instructor in residence in the School of Social Work's Policy Practice Concentration. And as we are recording and as this airs, we are coming off of the 2022 Campaign School for Social Workers, which is an amazing annual program that has trained more than 2,000, and I'm sure that number's probably grown since you've written that on your website, Tanya, more than 2,000 social workers to run for office and lead campaigns. Welcome, Tanya, to Yukon 360. Julie, hi, Tom. So nice to be here. I'm also, in addition to my role in Hartford, I'm also a very proud alum. My husband and I are yes. UConn. Yes, excellent. So, so for those of us who don't know, including me, what is political social work? 
maybe I should step back and say a little bit about Nancy Humphreys, who coined the term because she founded the Institute in 1994, 26 years ago, and was really, we call her the, the, we used to tease her, but we called her the mother of political social work because she really thought about social work as a political profession and conceptualized this idea that not only could social workers work with individuals and families, but that we were perfectly trained to be working in political settings. So inside politics, as elected officials, as staff for elected officials, as advocates shaping change from the outside. So all of the places where policy is formed, no one being more informed than social workers in terms of how policy impacts individuals and communities. So she conceptualized it as a practice specialty. And we've actually now think more about political social work being something that all social workers can do because inherently social work is a political profession. It, it really is grounded in that idea of the individual in the environment. And so you can't fix complex problems that individuals face without also addressing the issues that they face in their environment and in their communities and, and beyond. There's a lot of ways that we could go with that. I, I was going to ask you why it's important for social workers to be involved in the political system and in shaping policy. And you did sort of start to touch on that, but maybe you can expand on that a little bit. Sure. I think in a basic sense, social workers see problems, you know, in order to fix a problem, you have to be up close to a problem, right? And really understand it. So we have a lot of social workers who are experts on the problems that their communities face. And they don't always have the time or training to, to bring what they know, that expertise to the political process. So then we have some social workers who really specialize in the political process in you know, understanding how legislation is passed, understanding how policy is formed, community organizers who build political power, you know, all those ways that we shape the political process, we do so as a continuum. So some will do a little and collaborate with others. Others will spend a lot of time in the, in the political process and bring both social workers and the communities we serve into the political process. That's how we work. At the Humphreys Institute, we, we really think a lot about how we increase that political participation. What do people need to know to be politically active? What kind of power do we need to be building within communities so that they have the power to shape their, their, their communities? So that's sort of the space that we're in. There are a lot of different ways uh, that anyone and social workers specifically can be involved in politics. And I know when I was working with the school, you know, there were stories we did about even just getting students to write letters to the editor about the issues and about the public acts and things that were being considered by the legislature. But obviously, one of the most high profile ways for social workers to be involved is to actually be elected to office or to run campaigns. And as I mentioned earlier, the campaign school, um, which has been running for several years now, was just just this past weekend and was in person for the first time in a few years. <laughs> so how did that go? And uh, tell us a little bit more about what that is and what that aims to do. I'd love to. So I, I am still so excited about what happened last weekend. We had 120 students and faculty and advocates 
come from 12 different states and 28 different schools and two different countries um, to be in person. I know. And I didn't realize how much I missed connecting with people one-on-one until I, I walked into this room and, and we call it the campaign school for social workers. And, and a couple of things about that one is that we, we really don't spend a lot of time on, on partisan politics. It's, it's a nonpartisan training, but we do speak from social works values and our code of ethics because social workers do have a very strong code of ethics that really is like a superpower when you are dealing in politics. You know, it will navigate you through all those sticky situations and conflicts that you would need to wrestle with in in politics. So, you know, it's again, it's one of those reasons why we think social workers are so well situated. Running for office for most people is a long runway. And so, one of the things that we we spend a lot of time doing is Yes, we give them the fundamentals of how to run a campaign and why they are qualified. It's sort of that, that the the skills, the competence and the confidence, you know, that that we are all qualified to run for office and to participate in politics. So it was great. And and so we spend a lot of time on on leadership. And, And again, running for office is a long runway for a lot of people. And the first thing, the first step is to realize that you are a leader and that you belong in politics and that politics can make you feel like an outsider. It has a a way of making you feel small, but that you shouldn't feel small, that our democracy is stronger when we are all involved. It sounds great. And and being in person must have been fantastic, too, for the first time in a couple of years. Oh, and the only funny part was that, you know, the the mask mandate dropped the night before. So we were all a little mask awkward together, but but we did it. And and it was really special because, you know, politics is all about relationships, too. So being in person is it filled my bucket and I I know it filled others, too. So it was a it was a very special weekend. When I was a reporter in North Carolina, a, a colleague and I did a series of stories on the child welfare system there. And our, some of our best and most important sources were social workers, like county level social workers, because not only did they have the sort of direct experience with individuals, but they had a really good sense of the kind of broader sort of structural problems and challenges. And when we talked to them, we heard over and over again, they would say, no one's ever asked us about this before. Hmm. How do we get policymakers to think of, to recognize that social workers are not just sort of direct providers of service, but also kind of experts in policy? You know, it's really interesting, and it's one of the the hidden or maybe not recognized gems of the Yukon School of Social Work is that we have hundreds of social workers in our state that have gone through our training and our programs that are working for our congressional delegation. We have six social workers who are elected at the state legislature. We've got social workers that run for mayor or selectmen in our state. We've got social workers who lead policy and agencies. We've got lobbyists who are social workers. I mean, all across the spectrum of politics and certainly embedded into all kinds of social service agencies. So, so, and that is different. I mean, of all the 50 states, I think Connecticut should be so proud and and we are recognized as really having this full continuum of of the power of social work. But interesting you mentioned North Carolina because we we do offer we go on the road at least once a year in the last 5 years and at the end of the month we'll be at University of North Carolina Wilmington training social workers and students in North Carolina how to bring their expertise to the political process. So we're wow. really excited about that. Oh, that's fantastic. 
That is great. You were talking about all the politicians. I, I wrote down to ask you, are there any famous politicians that people might know who are social workers or, you Julie, know, I don't I, to put you on the spot, but. <laughs> I love this question. Actually, we have this long legacy of political social workers. The very first woman elected to any national legislature, Jeanette Rankin, she was the first woman elected to Congress in 1917. The first female cabinet member, Frances Perkins, who served under FDR and was one of the architects of in shaping you know, the New Deal and, and a lot of our worker safety standards and social security and all those things. Actually, Harry Hopkins also in that administration was a social worker. Whitney Young was a social worker. Dorothy Height was a social worker. And, and that's just to name... Um, a few. We stand on the shoulders of some of some greats. You mentioned getting involved, and that's something that you work on, like in the policy school. That seems to be a, a challenge across the the system in the U.S. You know, the, the voter participation rates are low, but also I think sort of engagement is low. Why do you think that is, and what are some effective strategies to kind of counteract that? I, I completely agree. So the first thing that we examine at the Institute is really voting as a social determinant of health and a political determinant of health. And when you look at voter participation, you know, voting is also about relationships and trust in government and, and beyond. And, and I would say that most people, we think voting is so easy but the act of voting and figuring out who represents you and who will serve in your interests is actually not that easy. Historically, our system of getting people elected ignores non-voters. So many, many people in, in America are not being asked or they're being asked at the presidential election or when there's a high profile and not being asked when it's a local election or a state election. So one of the things that we were excited to share at the campaign school, and we are working on this as a national call to action within our profession, is the power of three. So we gave social workers who attended, and we will give one to all of our students at the school of social work, because actually our first year students registered more than 500 people to vote last semester. So we give them a lanyard because technology sort of helps that and have them register and engage three people to vote. And, and we do that because one, it gives a social worker who's doing it for the first time the opportunity to engage someone in politics and ask them and hear their concerns about maybe it's their community or maybe it's why they choose to vote or not vote. The bottom line is that we know that also the role of, of policies like felony disenfranchisement, you know, those kinds of things that, that bring people out of civic engagement actually have this ripple effect into communities, families and communities. That's sort of the foundation of civic engagement. And when you take people out and you have communities that have been disproportionately affected by arrest rates and incarceration, we also see the lowest rates of civic participation. And that's, you know, that's no surprise. And so we've been also working to sort of overturn those laws and grounded in, in, in the research because the, the practice of voting, the act of voting is actually um, been shown to be good for people and good for communities. Communities that vote in higher rates have significantly better outcomes. And That's there's some research to show that the practice is even good for individuals. I know, especially in the most recent presidential election, Stacey Abrams and the Fight Fair campaign and everything, that was really kind of what people were focused on as 
getting people to vote and voter mobilization, but I know organizations like yours and the Hartford Power Voting Corps that is run through the Humphreys Institute and by students in the School of Social Work and organizations like it around the country get out kind of in simple, small ways. So I know they were at one of the um, most popular election sites in Hartford helping, you know, handing out coffee and donuts to people waiting in long lines and just making sure people were at the right place, which, you know, some of us might think, how could you not know? But there's there's a lot of there's a lot of barriers to to being able to vote. Yes. And and maybe I'll start there, because when you think about voting, you know, a lot of us who if you live in a suburb and you've only ever driven up to your polling place and cast your ballot and you were in and out in five minutes and you have a job that might allow you to do that, you know, voting can seem very, very easy. But when you have kids and you are taking a bus or you don't have a car or you are working long hours or you don't have flexible hours, voting can be really difficult. And in fact, elections are very local and they're run by local resources. So again, when we think about when elections go wrong, unfortunately, we've had some very big problems in, in Bridgeport. One year they ran out of ballots in the, in the 2010 election and in New Haven last year or in 2020, New Haven, the mail didn't deliver the absentee ballots. So there was a lot of people and a lot of students trying to register and vote in the same day that were turned away. You know, so, so voting can be really more complicated. And it was two years ago in the 2020 election that you're referencing, Julie, mm-hmm. that the student interns at the Humphreys Institute, they set up a a table at Grace Lutheran Church in Hartford, knowing that that was a very, very popular voting site. And the line for that election was up in the cold, was up to two hours long at certain points. And so we were handing out hot drinks and and food and and activities for kids because parents were holding their kids' hands. I mean, it was it was not great. But then we were also able to call the election hotline and say, hey, this line is too long. You need more workers here. And and we got an immediate response. So it's both sometimes being there as sort of that election protection hat and then also, you know, helping people navigate the process. And that's kind of where the social work piece comes in, the the knowing how to relate on that one-to-one level and do these small things that just overcome these barriers much more easily. Yes. And again, if you're just trying to get someone to vote for one time, we don't see the needle being moved. This is really long-term work in terms of engaging people on their fundamental right to vote and participating in shaping their communities. So so that's the voter engagement side of what we do. And then we also use the training to say, democracy is stronger when we have full participation. You know, who's missing from the room? Who's missing from campaigns? Who's missing from town committees? Who's missing from advocacy efforts? Social workers are always looking around the room to say who should be who should be in this circle of power or in this conversation? I guess sort of um, kind of wrapping up because of all the stuff that I've learned, I wonder when you talk to people, do you hear a lot of common misconceptions about social workers? Is there anything that stands out? Like people don't realize the breadth of things that social workers do. We all joke. We all have party, you know, stories where it just stops a conversation. Oh, you help people, you know, which is, which is true. But yes, I would say most people don't think about social workers as being political. They think more about the important work that they're doing in schools and in agencies and beyond. And, and, and this is just building on all of it. It's, it's really trying to say we are 
we are accessing the full power of our profession when we make sure that we're doing the full continuum of, of care and service in communities. And some of that is so great. Just, I mean, the, the election work that you mentioned, you know, when I moved back to Connecticut from other states, I was shocked because I didn't realize that, you know, there's no early voting here in other states, sometimes six weeks and that affords many more opportunities to schedule a time to vote. But here it really is like, you know, you, unless you get an absentee ballot, like, and if it's snowing that day, if it's raining that day, if there's a two hour wait, you're waiting. And yeah, so the, the barriers to voting are, are, I think, higher than a lot of people think. You know what's fascinating, and and there was a public hearing last week. All, all of our stu- all of our macro students too. We also use this term called macro social work for students who are working really in systems, our community organizing and policy students, and they all testify at the legislature as part of their an assignment in their political advocacy class. And there was a public hearing last Friday on absentee voting, and and the one thing that is really um, important that we share is that. States that make voting easier, so voting is different in all 50 states. So states that make voting easier by by passing policies like same-day voter registration or early voting or no-excuse absentee ballots and all of those ways, they actually have better health outcomes on a variety of measures. Mm -hmm. So again, this idea that political participation and particularly voting is is good for people, it's good for communities, and it's good for democracy. That's fascinating. That's amazing. What an impact. You all can learn more about School of Social Works at Humphreys Institute at ssw.ucon.edu. And thank you so much, Tanya. Thank Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. A lot of people on Twitter.com have asked for this. They've asked for the return of Tom's History Corner. And I'm sad to say that there's been some urban renewal. There's been some renovation. <laughs> the corner is no longer there. Now it's, but there is Tom's History bus stop. That oh, is there. Oh, it's a bus stop? The bus stop. It's a little smaller space. It's a little, little shorter, but it's still the same idea. There's history and there's Tom. <laughs> <laughs> Tom, I do have to say that I really felt, and not just because of the people on Twitter, I I emailed you before anyone even, not, and people had said things before, but we did have someone directly ask us last week about it. And I had emailed you because I felt like something was missing from this podcast and it was Tom's history bus stop. Well, let's take a trip over to the bus stop. Are you really uh, calling, can you call call I was trying to think of something that's smaller than a corner. (laughs) Tom's history, I don't know. I think you said spotlight earlier. I did. I did. Tom's, but that actually, Tom's, that's, that's not that that's, fun, though. Uh, no. No. You know what? We're, we're, we're going to workshop it. Yeah, we'll, we'll workshop, workshop it. it. If you, we'll you have know. a brainstorm. Yes. We're working on changing that name. Um, however, for this inaugural edition of whatever it's going to be called, I want to talk about a, a bygone restaurant from Yukon history. The year was 1951, and a, a, a restaurateur, an ambitious restaurateur named Tom Nenos, opened what would be called the Blue and White Diner. On, on North Eagleville Road. Now, I haven't been able to find out exactly where it was, but I think it used to be where the public safety complex is now. Okay. Makes uh, sense. And it was a, a small brick building and there were essentially uh, space for two businesses. There was the diner and then there was a succession of other businesses, including a bookstore, which would have been great, a barbershop and the Daily Campus for a while in the 1970s. Ooh. Wow. It was located in the same business. And I imagine the diner was full of young journalists at all hours. It was your, you know, classic college area diner menu, hamburgers, hot dogs, sandwiches, things like that. Late night food for people. And for, for decades, it was a popular spot on campus until in 1973, the building was owned by the university. They were his landlord. 
And they had an inspection, a health inspector and fire marshal, and told him he needed uh, to improve a spring. He needed to install a sprinkler system. Oh boy! Uh, and improve the floors and replace the grill equipment, which he estimated would cost about ten thousand dollars. And uh, Nano said he did not have that kind of money, so he voluntarily decided to close the business down, which was very sad. Students, the, the daily campus at the time was full of letters from students lamenting the loss oh, of the blue and white diner. It's always sad when a stalwart stalwart is that how you pronounce that word? Yeah, stalwart. Yeah, stalwart. Uh, yeah, a, you know, lamp post. <laughs> what am I trying to say? This, this is a, something in the community. A pillar. There you go. A pillar. There a pillar you go. A in pillar. the community, like that. Because was it a twenty-four hour dining? The story doesn't say. Now, this is. I'm reading from a story from March 1973, written by Jay Sloves, and uh, this is a paragraph, kind of summing up. And, and the, the, I imagine Tom Nanos is kind of a taciturn guy uh, because it says throughout the course of its campus tenure, blue and white quote, is basically the same as it always was, <laughs> except for the replacement of light bulbs, the addition and cancellations of brands of potato chips and cigarettes, and a jukebox that once featured the Mills Brothers, but now shows off Don McLean's American Thumb. American uh, Thumb? Yeah, and the cover of the, the American Pie album he's holding at some Gotcha. Gotcha. Uh, so yeah, Google the Mills Brothers. God, this is, I always miss Ken, but boy. Ken would be all over the Mills Brothers. Yes, I'm right sure now. he would have all kinds of facts about them. He probably bit, interviewed them. He probably did interview them. And Don McLean. Final I'm bit sure. of trivia. For those of you who are my vintage as students, you may remember Husky Blues, which was a nightclub across the street from E.O. Smith, where much of a store's center is now. And Tom Nanos' son, Elliot, was the owner of Husky Blues. So wow. a, a, a tradition of serving the Yukon community in the Nanos family. We could do a whole episode of like bygone Yukon restaurant type places. Yes. I yeah. really thought you were going to Kathy John's direction for a second. See? That, that's definitely going to be, a, I, I, I want to have some more info on that before I do that. But uh, the yeah. blue and white is, is one that I hadn't heard about until I found a bunch of old newspapers at a flea market. And, uh, oh, see, this alert. is why Tom is so good at the Tom's history uh, bucket. Yeah. So here, here comes <laughs> I'm just gonna, the bus. I'm just going to call it a different noun every every time. Here, here comes the bus. We should go. I'm sorry. Oh that's gosh. pretty lame. It's pretty bad. But, uh, I missed this. This is great. <laughs> this was a good episode. Uh, thanks again to our guest, uh, Tanya Rhodes-Smith. She was fantastic. And thanks to everybody for listening in. Please join us in about two weeks. Until then, you know, stay healthy.